Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. From an early age, Jason Hardrath set audacious athletic goals as a way to channel his energy. And now, a couple decades later, and after a few Ironmans and a life-altering car accident, Jason is still setting and achieving audacious goals, which is part of the reason why Jason holds more fastest-known times than anyone in the world. In this conversation, Jason and I talk about his upbringing, how he came to orient his life around movement. We discuss the question of the interplay between risk and maximal exertion and becoming fully present. We also talk about how that nearly fatal car accident introduced him to the world of FKTs. And then we briefly talk about his upcoming film, Journey to 100, which chronicles Jason's attempt to climb the 100 tallest peaks in the state of Washington in 50 days. This is a terrific conversation. There are definitely going to be more conversations with Jason in our future. But for now, enjoy this one. And here we go. Well, Jason, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I had a great day of teaching with my students here at Bonanza Elementary in Bonanza, Oregon. Uh, that's down in Southern Oregon, out in the middle of nowhere. It's a very rural school, um, about 200 kids, K through six in the school. And uh, I get to be everybody's favorite teacher because I'm the uh, PE teacher for the elementary school. <laughs> well, now, wait a second. I'm not sure that PE teacher is always default the favorite teacher. So I feel like maybe you deserve a little more credit than this. Do you have what's your one or two sort of, you know, go to dance moves or tricks to ensure that you're everyone's favorite teacher? Um, well, I could probably just say I have skateboards for my students <laughs> and that's like, like one of many, um, uh, fleet of skateboards, fleet of bikes, rock wall, okay. pogo sticks, unicycles. Do I need to keep going? No. I mean, yeah, I, I, I actually, I am deserving of the title my kindergartners bestow on me of world's best PE teacher. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Skateboards and unicycles. That'll, it's pretty great. That'll get It's you. a fun space. That's awesome. Well, interesting. And and I don't know, skateboarding might come up in our conversation a little bit later here, but um, let's just dive right in it here. I think the first question I wanted to ask you is, have you always pushed yourself physically? I would say I've always been drawn to physical challenge and physical pursuits. You know, when, you know, memories of myself as a little kid, when presented with a chance to run a race, I ran to win right? Like literally they'd line you up and race you across the field to win a prize. Like I would go for it. Um, so I've always embraced physical challenge and always, you know, sort of strived for things. And I definitely have never been able to sit still. Well, well on the other end of that, I was the ADHD kid, uh, couldn't sit down, couldn't shut up impulsive behaviors. Um, Movement was like one of the only things that could help ground me and make me a like somewhat operating member of society as a kid um, and emphasis on the somewhat. And so, yeah, movement just became essential and like always had a keen sort of sense of that need to move in my body and that drive to move. And so it became very natural as I got older and older to pursue bigger and bigger challenges 
Um, so yeah, I would say in, in a way, yeah, it hasn't always been shaped the way it is now, but it's always been some part of my life just cause it has to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you felt that early on. Oh, very early on. Yeah. As, as far back as I can remember. And then these days, is it sort of the same or does it feel like you are, you know, kind of managing the ADHD you know, outside, I mean, it's so funny, right? It's like, well, it turns out we should just be moving anyway. But I mean, do you feel like it's the same now as when you were a kid? Like if you're not moving, things are not going well for you? Or is it, I don't know, somehow better managed than that? I have other coping mechanisms and outlets, but it is like moving my body is still completely essential. It just It doesn't just like magically go away. I mean, yeah, if, uh, if I'm not out moving, just like anybody else, I get irritable. Um, but perhaps a bit more than other people. When you imagine those tasks that you just have to kind of get done and force yourself through, uh, the way I compare it to people is I've I've been at mile 70 of a 100-mile race quite a few times in my life. And that, that sensation of being too far from the finish line to have any euphoria yet and being so far out into the fray of it that you've just, you're just beat to hell and you've kind of lost hope for a bit, like that low point, trying to do paperwork feels like that for me. Uh, like it's, it's an incredibly difficult task to orient myself on unless I have like a huge sense of meaning with the project. Um, and that's just kind of how the ADHD psyche works. It's like, unless we are absolutely obsessed and absorbed in the, the entire process of a thing, it's almost like we can't bring ourselves to focus on any aspect of it. And so I'm very much still the somewhat the same way. It's, I've learned to channel it more like a superpower instead of uh, to my detriment. It still hurts me. I mean, I, I forget to pay bills. I forget to answer emails. I forget, like I'm all the time getting, you know, in trouble and nagged for those little things that you're supposed to get done as an adult. Um, but I also do things like raise funds to install a rock wall at my school and, um, you know, do, do rad field trips, taking my sixth graders on hiking trips. And of course, then go and break records for climbing mountains. Um, so it's like, I'm able to orient myself around things that perhaps people who are able to distract themselves from those bigger projects by doing all the little things they're supposed to do, don't have the bandwidth to make sure that they get them done. Let's talk a bit more before we move to sort of present day. Um, just more about some of the things you were into as a kid. And because you've already mentioned now, you know, climbing a couple times and climbing walls and the rest and talk about what this life of movement for you was like as a kid. What were you into? Absolutely. I mean, at a, at a young age, it was a ton of imaginative play, um, playing forts and guns and robbers and cowboys and Indians and soldiers and, you know, cl- building like climbing ropes and all, all anything you can imagine a kid doing, jumping off hay bales at my uncle's farm, like all sorts of wild stuff. And then it got channeled uh, a bit more when they built a BMX track and a skate park out about a block away from my house and got very into skateboarding, rollerblading, BMX biking, kind of those, you know, X Games sports. X Games were popular at the time. And so became very absorbed, obsessively absorbed into those. Um, and, you know, that, that was a huge formative part of learning that process of taking your knocks to, you know, over and over weeks and weeks of falling on the same trick, right, onto hard asphalt to finally have that moment of euphoria when you, when you land the trick, 
right? And I think that's such a powerful formative experience for young people to to go through that process and take their falls. And then also it was a source uh, from there, it turned into a source of exploration, right? Like had my bike, had my skateboard, would take off from the house in the morning and just go roam my town and explore my town and, and sort of get to understand the lay of the world around me. Um, and I think that was a huge part of building resilience and independence. Um, so I think a huge, a huge part of my capacity today as a man to go out and, and feel power within, you know, nature and the world around me was because of those years, just being a little skater punk taken off around the town, uh, and like figuring out how I was going to feed myself that day. And if I fell and ripped a, ripped a big chunk of skin off and was bleeding, like tearing a chunk of the shirt off and tying it off. So, cause it's like, if I go home, like mom's gonna, it's over the day's done if I go home. Um, so it's like, let's, let's find a way to bandage this up and find a way to get some food and like stay out. And yeah, kind of that spirit of, you know, never say die adventure, uh, was kind of birthed in those, in those skater years. Um, yeah, but then sadly broke my wrist doing some downhill skating as I, uh, got into middle school and my parents had gotten uh, kind of, of course, gotten sick of me skipping the house in the morning and not coming back till the evening. And again, like I, I should clarify, like some people might assume like, oh, he was probably just like sneaking out to do drugs and like some kids do. But for me, it was like, I would, I, I remember times I got offered where kids were smoking weed behind the skate park. It's like, no, I'm here to skate. Like I'm, I'm here, I'm here to get good at the thing. Like that's why I'm here. Um, and in my mind, it was very clear what I was there for. And, you know, that kind of spirit of being focused on, on the actual task, the thing I wanted to do and staying focused on it was like a part of that formative experience that I think was very important. But yeah, anyways, took the, took the spill, broke the wrist. The parents were sick of me skipping the house and, uh, said no more skating while you're under our roof. And, you know, that was kind of a rough tension point for a while between us, obviously, because it was a huge expression of who I was, a huge outlet. I'd become very good. I was regarded as one of like the, the better skaters in town, which, you know, for a kid having a place, especially a kid that knows themselves as a constant fuck up, excuse me if my language isn't welcome here, but like a constant fuck up of relationships and at school and at church and in every social context, every societal context, like always would mess it up because of impulsive behavior to have a space where you're highly regarded, like that's significant, right? And and I found that through physical exertion, through repetitive effort. And so to suddenly have that yanked away by my parents obviously created some some very significant tension. But then that became the cascade. Like I built the fitness through the skating all day to then come in and realize I was very close to breaking the six minute mile in middle school, just in, in PE. And no one else was doing it that year. And so it was like, well, here we are again with a challenge. Like, how much do I have to work to to run under six minute mile? Um, and just started putting in the work really hard in PE. And I can still remember that final that final PE mile of the year. Uh, I believe it was seventh grade year. And I remember just hearing as, you know, worked my butt off. One of, one of my classmates even paced with me for the first part and like blew up with like a lap to go. And then it's just like, go. And I just remember sprinting. And like, at that point, you know, like hadn't really, other than breaking my wrist, hadn't really ever felt pain like that. And I remember like stepping across the line. And the only thing that matters is that the first letter, the first word, the first number that the teacher read off was five and just 
throwing my arms up and flopping into the grass. And it was a 557 is what the, the mile pace was for it. But I just remember hearing that five and just euphoria, like through the pain being like, that was worth it. And it just like solidified this goal setting, like belief in myself, uh, which had to take a few hard knocks about, you know, learning how to set realistic goals because we all have limits, but it it solidified a a path of like, I'm going to continue to seek challenge and I'm going to continue to set audacious goals from a, from, you know, a ridiculously young age. Okay. So it's sixth grade or it's seventh grade when you get this mandate from your parents, no more skating. That would have been early seventh grade year, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. And so I'm a little curious, like I imagining, you know, if you're a good skater in town, I don't know a lot of like good skaters who are also like, and I do endurance sports or I want to see how good I can be at the mile or something. So were there other... I mean, we could do a long time, I think, on just that getting told, like, you're not doing anymore the thing that you're really good at and have a lot of maybe your self-identity invested in. Um, But, like, you didn't go play football. You didn't go play basketball. You got interested in running, breaking a six-minute mile. Well, I was already already playing football. Okay. It was a football town. My dad grew up kind of a football dad. Right. Uh, you know, he's from Wisconsin. He's a diehard in the wool Green Bay Packer. Um, so I grew up, I grew up with football and I started playing football. And actually, that becomes a part of the story down the line. Um, my dad came from a really hard background and, you know, rough farm kid life with a stepdad um, who was not a great stepdad, um, to put it lightly. And so he had a lot of those hardships that he was carrying with him. And so, uh, he kind of disengaged with me, you know, being a kid who couldn't learn from my mistakes, right? That's kind of one way to sum up from an outside perspective, a ADHD kid is constantly would make the same mistakes. And so like, you know, that started to push him over the edge. So like, I can look back now, right? With the clarity of being a man myself and be like, oh, like he was stopping the cycle, right? He had been abused himself. His stepping away was him. Like, I'm not going to become that man. I'm not going to do anything like that to my kid. And so I can remember some moments where he got very mad with me and it was very intense. And then shortly thereafter, I would see him like taking my brother places and I would get left behind, which families do anyways, right? Like parents split the kids, like no big deal. But as a kid, it's tough to decode that, right? It's like, why doesn't dad like me? Why doesn't dad love me? Um, and so definitely created, created some, uh, some drive for affirmation inside of me, right? Like if I, I wasn't feeling that from my father figure, so I started chasing that really hard in life. And for a while, it, it like, on me, I think it was a huge drive with the skating. It was a huge drive with uh, pursuing that PE mile, huge drive within pushing into running more in in high school. And then that's when he kind of started to reconnect, like, okay, you're, you're going to try to go to state. And, uh, uh, and to tie it in, it was uh, became a point of an interesting like bit of drama between us because him being football dad and me like discovering this path down running. Um, and finally having to make the decision, like I should run cross country instead of playing football my junior year, you know, the year where it's like, oh, you're going to get moved from JV to varsity and our our town, Baker city, Oregon, it's like kind of football town, always going to the quarterfinals, always going to the semifinals, always going to the finals. Um, so it's like, this is the year you're going to go be a part of that, you know, a part of the big show and being like, no, this is the year I'm going to go run cross country instead which wasn't the cool sport in the town. 
but knowing like this is a path this is this is the correct path for me. This is what I need to pursue um, because I was kind of like, I want to make it onto a college team and I'm going to have more of a chance of running on a college team and pursuing this dream further and bigger, um, finding that next big challenge if I'm doing both, if I'm running both, both sports. Plus it's more time to train, more chances at competition. And I remember that talk, having that talk and actually the, the journey to 100 film kind of captures a bit of this. And I think they do, they do the, uh, Lauren Steele, the director does a fabulous job of capturing some of this, this tension of my childhood, um, in that, in that short film. And I remember like, like those deep feelings of, of sort of inner turmoil of kind of confronting my dad, like, Hey, I know you love football, but I think I should run cross country and, you know, him struggling with it a bit, but then, you know, pull managing to pull the the good dad moves and and be like yeah okay if it's what you need to do it's what you need to do like do it and then being able to chase that and i did manage to get onto a a college team a small naia team and get a small scholarship for running which was like kind of just this this little dream of mine like okay i want to i want to actually in my mind it was get paid for running uh at that point like i want to manage to do that even if it's just a little bit and yeah that that launched the journey into the college running so yeah, kind of a kind of a through line. Here's a question I've been dying to ask you. And you mentioned this in the trailer to Journey to 100, which as you know, I'm very disappointed that I have not yet actually had a chance to see. <laughs> you mentioned in the in the trailer that you say, you know, as a kid, I just had a pretty difficult time focusing but when you're doing hard things, um, you know, we're getting into the mountains. I think you say specifically in, in the context of the trailer, that's when things really get clear. And this is something that I was actually just thinking again last week. And I, I was curious to hear your take on this. We just did this big event, you know, this thing called the Blister Summit, which, you know, basically anybody who's kind of hosted an event, it's basically just 20 hours a day of work. And we did that for like 10 days. and. I would be, you know, you're you're all caught up in a thousand little logistic things and frankly wasn't always in the best headspace. And then I would get on the mountain. And in this case it was a ski event, right? And you or I would drop into a line that like, you know, you ski this bad or you're not focused, you're going to hit trees or go over this cliff. And it was amazing, like shocking and almost embarrassing the kind of mental transformation for me where I was kind of this like, don't bother me with one more detail or like we need a parking pass for thus and such to this kind of like so happy, almost euphoric state. Now I'm getting to my question for you. I'm wondering, given you talked about skating, you talked about football, and then in terms of some of the like, say more consequential mountain running you do, do you feel like to hit that focus or to hit that sense of elation that you first have to get sucked into risk, like physical risk, or is just flat out physical exertion enough, right? Because sometimes when you're on a trail run, it's not like I'm, I might die here. If that long question makes sense, if you, if you know that, what I mean. That question makes total sense. And I was smiling through the whole thing for people who can't see the video because you're, you're spot on. My mind goes a thousand different directions. Even while we're having this conversation, like there's all these different lines popping in my head and the stories I could tell instead of the one I am telling. And so I don't think it's a, it's not really a question of enough, right? Cause 
even at the age of 15, when I was out running, I, I referred to it as a distilling process where it's almost like the layers of an onion being pulled away. Maybe a little, a little, uh, Shrek reference here for those who used to watch that cartoon. It's almost like the layers of an onion being peeled away, like one after the other. And pretty soon all you're left with, like first, the first thing to go are all the silly things you're frustrated about and all the like to do items. And then the next layer is like things you're frustrated about and emotional about. And then pretty soon that's gone. And pretty soon you're just left out there with just you. And are you going to go the next mile or are you going to give up? Like at some point that's all that's left. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, that's a beautiful process for me that I've always been in love with. And that's why I refer to my running as my first love is like, there's this process you get to go through as you push out into the miles and the distance where everything just falls away. And pretty soon it's just you and the decision to go on or not go on. And you realize like, Oh, that's, that's what was there all the time. Um, it's like, that's, that's, that's the fundamental decision all the time. Um, but for me, what happens is when I mix that, right, if you look at like these FKTs I do, these fastest known times, it's this mixture of endurance pushing um, of different distances and different, you know, some of them, you know, the, now the, obviously the one we're having a conversation about 50 days long, but prior to that, like five days long down to 35 minutes long, where it's like, you're just blowing, blowing the red line off the top of your <laughs> odometer the whole way. Um, but doing that and mixing it, yes, with that, that risk. And I think the risk, the part it plays, right, is, is, you know, some people think, oh, you don't have a fear of heights. It's like, no, 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 I definitely have a fear of heights. I have a very distinct fear of heights. But what I've learned is fear is there to let us know we're actually in a serious situation. Like, this is for real. If you mess up here, it matters. And so, in my mind, fear isn't something to be avoided. Fear is something to learn to function well inside of. And so what I've taught myself over time is as fear rises, focus rises to match. And so fundamentally, when I put myself in these situations and I go out and it's not like I go out and just throw myself with no rope into these fifth class situations with no rehearsal. It's like, I'll go out. If I'm doing a very complex fifth class route, I'll rehearse it. It's like a choreographed dance, right? It's like, I know the capacity of my body. I know the movements and, and I'm executing them almost like a, a choreographed dance in a rehearsed way and just going out and doing that. But also in the presence of this, this ever present level of fear and this focus to match it, it just, any other thought is stripped away, right? There's, it's just complete silence in my mind, just beautiful, beautiful silence and it's like, I can feel the grains of the rock and I can feel the tension in my right calf muscle. And I feel the breeze across the skin on my face and the, you know, the temperature of the rock and the friction on the rubber of my shoes. Like, it's just like all of these, you know, fine grained nuanced details are just the volumes turned up to 11 when normally that's what's, you know, you're, you're not feeling the tension in your muscles. You're not feeling the feeling of your shoes when you're sitting doing paperwork. Um, you know, it's like, that's the stuff that's normally dialed down to zero. And so to me, with my mind, that is more a sanctuary than any church I've ever stepped in. Yeah. And so let me push you one more time on this though, because I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm sorry, this is selfish question time, apparently, but I'm trying to think through this as well. And like, if flat out exertion is enough, and that's why I think it might be enough, actually, especially if you have a time goal in mind. And like, 
I'm a recreational runner. I'd never have like, I'm not trying to win the race or like, you know, break the FKT time or whatever. So maybe that's why I don't have that quite that same mental element. Whereas like if I'm, yeah, skiing and it's like, cool, you're above a cliff. You slip an edge, like this is going to go real badly for you. That is the thing that focuses the mind or gets me like fully present. And I think, you know, right. I, I don't meditate. But we hear all this stuff about, you know, be present fully in the moment. It's like, I know when that happens for me. And it's usually when things are getting a bit spicy out in the mountains. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same boat for me. And I mean, I think it's, I do think it's possible to get there on physical exertion alone. Mm -hmm. I do think it's possible to get there when you're, when you're completely wrapped in a perfect, you know, the, the, the flow state people talk about where it's perfectly matched skill up against a perfectly matched challenge. And it comes down to sheer force of will in the final moments to race that clock into Mm -hmm. the line. Like those moments are definitely enough. Yeah. But if you want an easier way to get there (laughs) than, you know, running a hundred miles flat out, it's like throw in a little bit of risk and suddenly just the, those primal instincts take you there. You know, the lower brain takes over and it's mm-hmm. like, shut the hell up, upper brain. <laughs> we don't care about philosophy anymore. We're here to live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Switching gears. You had a really serious car accident that kind of, um, I think it's fair to say, changed the changed your trajectory a bit. Talk a bit about that experience. <sighs> oh, man. Um, I was still teaching high school at the time and I kind of kind of got a lesson in my own words and I got to hear him play in my head, um, you know, after it happened. So just kind of one of those days you're, you're stressed out, kind of had a rough day teaching where a bunch of students, uh, I think I had to get one student kicked out of school cause they like showed up with alcohol in their backpack, like not fun stuff to deal with as a teacher. This not the, the reason you show up as a teacher, like the, the stuff you kind of don't like. And so kind of a rough day. And then the other track coach didn't show up. And so I had to coach all 30 athletes like by myself, multiple sports. Um, cause you know, that's what track is. It's all those different sports. Um, so trying to do stuff that's outside of my strengths, you know, like javelin and, and discus and all that. And I'm just like running around trying to, trying to get contact with all these different students. Um, and then I had signed up to be a representative at my district office for my school and practice ran late. And I'm like, I'm still a pretty young teacher at this point. I'm like, I'm about to be late to a meeting with the superintendent. Like that seemed like a really big deal in my mind. I'm like, oh, dang it. Like, ah, and I'm stressed out. And so I'm like rushing and driving too fast. And I hadn't put my seatbelt on. And I realized like I had the presence of mind to realize I was stressed out. It's like, all right, I better listen to some music and kind of jam out and chill out. But when I reached over to like plug in, because I still had the aux cable. um, When I went to plug the aux cable into the phone, Car caught the shoulder. It was a steep shoulder. It was a little Geo Metro car. Uh, car rolled. I went out my passenger window as it rolled. Um, shredded my ACL and LCL of my right knee completely to confetti. Broke my shoulder in two places. Broke nine ribs. Collapsed a lung. Internal contusions. Um, really got lucky. I mean, mathematically, statistically, I should have been dead. Um, I, uh, one doctor told me if you'd been like a typical American, you know, male, you probably would have suffocated on the side of the road. Another doctor was like, oh yeah, that part of your life. Because of course, one of the first things I bring up as I return to consciousness and all that is, uh, 
well, I love triathlon. I love running. I'd gotten into triathlon at that point. I'm very much into Ironman triathlon. Um, surprise, surprise. And yeah, the doctor just without missing beats, like, oh, you're probably just going to let that part of your life go and then walks out of the room. And needless to say that I, I didn't ever go back to that doctor again. Um, but I remember in that moment, just like my spirit, like sinking, the only version of myself I'd ever known since middle school had oriented himself in the world, not just like done it for fun, but oriented his decision-making in the world. Like I chose my job and my career to allow for me to continue to pursue things physically and for it to matter more that I was, right? Because we all remember the shitty PE teachers we had who were like drinking big gulps and sitting on a golf cart and were like, you're a joke. You're telling me to run like you're a joke. It's like, I knew I didn't want to be that. I knew I wanted to be the person who, because I was living it, I had the credibility to say, hey, doing this matters. It has meaning, like it's worth it because it's worth it in my life. And so like I'd oriented, I'd oriented my universe around this premise of, I love moving my body. I believe moving my body is important. I believe it, it matters that we aim high and try to be the best we can be and, and chase big goals. And suddenly someone tells me like, oh yeah, that's just gone now. And I just remember like my spirits like sinking in that moment. Um, like here I am, you know, broken body. And then, you know, oh yeah, also like everything you've ever thought about yourself, you better rebuild that too. And then luckily in the very next moment that, uh, that defiant skater punk Mm -hmm. sneak off and skate all day. Like you don't know me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, you don't you don't know how much work, you don't know how many, how many hard knocks I'm willing to take to get to where I want to go. And, and that spirit came through and that's, that among many other things is what drove me through the the recovery and rehab process from from that accident. Man, this whole thing where doctors are like, "Well, I guess that portion of your life is over." I think we need to like develop a new first response from doctors where instead they're like, "Well, you blew up and you're in super bad shape. You got a hell of a lot of work to do now, son, to get you back to where you are going to be." Like, what what's up with this like at your most broken in your life, they also feel the need to like come in and be like, "Well, that part's gone." You know, I mean, I've had to obviously I've had a lot of time to sit around, especially when I was still broken. <laughs> yeah. Um, had a lot of time to sit around and think about it. And I do love to give people grace and give them the benefit of the doubt, whether they believe it or not. I think it's one of the things that makes me a good teacher. Hmm. And sadly, we live in a sue happy society. So the easiest thing to avoid being sued is you give them the worst case. And if they get anything better than that, they're going to be thrilled. Wow. If you tell them too happy of a story, yeah. they're going to come after you. And it's like, that's sad. And I think we should turn that around. And I do think like doctors should be able to say like, Hey, someone that's willing to do this amount of work has gotten these kind of results. If you're not willing to put in, you know, the work and stuff doesn't go well. Yeah. It could be that this is done and you'll need to find other outlets. Um, but here's some people you can talk to, to help, (laughs) you know, a therapist or a, a coach or, uh, you know, PT instead of just like, Oh, yep. That part's done. Sucks for you. Bye. Here's my bill. (laughs) So pretty quickly, you move into defiant mode. Like how long actually was that from when you got the news to where you're like, nah, screw that. I'm going to, Oh, I'm still sitting in that room. I'm still sitting. It's like, it's like maybe a one minute stare out the window with glazed eyes, dip into, dip into the depression and then fuck that and back out to, I'm going to lean into the pain. I'm going to lean into the discomfort, just like I always have, right? Like that's the thing we learn as athletes. That's the thing we learn as ultra runners, as, as people who are into fitness is you put, 
you you embrace and you lean in and you chase discomfort in the moment now for greater strength later. Okay, so you very quickly take a defiant turn. Good for you. But then what does the trajectory look like? You were saying you had gotten invested in Ironman triathlons. Is that what you're fighting to get back to? Or talk about your, uh, you know, your athletic trajectory from there. Absolutely. The, I, I guess, like for the sake of contrast, on the Sunday before the car accident, I went for a 140-mile bike ride and then got off the bike and went for a 10-mile run. And then had the energy to go like hang out with my friends like later, later that day um, in the evening, like just was in this state of like, you know, being 25 and just fit as hell. And like, this is the year I'm going to make it into Kona. Like I'm on a, a, like an unreal next level of training, just that, that feeling of invincibility and and infinite, right. Is, is the word I might've even used to describe it. And then on Wednesday of that week, I couldn't get my own fucking drink of water. Um, Just bam gone. And so like stark contrast, sudden change. And so a huge part of the mental process was sort of not living in my own shadow. I like, I'd say that two really essential parts was one. I, I, even to this day, I refer to the Ironman days and world championships, qualifying for world championships and all that as my former life. Um, Cause I still, I might not ever run marathons as fast as I ran them back then. Like I used to be able to run a 250 marathon. I don't think I can do that anymore. Um, maybe, maybe still get some like 255, maybe 257. I, d- I don't know if the lungs have a lot of scar tissue. The knee still isn't quite the same. Um, when it comes to high end output, like the body's not quite the same. Plus now I'm 33 instead of 25. Um, so definitely, definitely kind of had this understanding in my head, right? Cause one of the hard, one of the hard knocks I, I, I referenced lightly earlier, like you learn, you have to have some hard knocks to learn to set realistic goals. And that's the one thing that makes people lose faith in a goal setting mindset is they go, Oh, I can set goals and achieve anything. And then they fail on some significant goals. Well, in high school, I thought I was going to break the school record in the 1500. I came nowhere near that. Like that was my first like real reality check of, Oh, I have, very significant limits. Like, like I'm not a world, like a world-class athlete when it comes to pure running. And so I guess this hard knock knocked me into this sort of realistic evaluation of, okay, I might not ever qualify for a world championship again in triathlon. Like that might be out the window. I might, my lungs might never breathe air and process air in a way that allow me to cruise at a 135 beat per minute heart rate while doing nearly 25 miles an hour on a bike. Like that might not ever happen again. And so just kind of went, okay, like maybe that's out the window, but there's a whole lot of ways to move and challenge my body that I know exist out there in the world. And I am going to do whatever it takes to get back to some version of what I love. I will not stop until I'm doing things on the scale I love them and in the way I love them again. And so that was the trajectory. That was the the new mission. And so like leaned into the rehab with that mindset of embracing the pain, leaned into like, uh, I, I started swimming while my ribs weren't even healed yet. Like with my leg just floating behind me with a pole buoy. Um, and like every stroke with my, with my right arm, because that was the side the ribs were broken on would just be agonizing. But it's like, ribs are going to heal. Like they're going to take the same amount of time to heal. It's just, this will hurt a bit more along the way and I'll stay fit. 
you know, it's one thing I can do to have a, an outlet and a, a way to go out, go do something with my body again and to show myself that I'm still somewhat in control of some part of my life. And so just leaned in. I actually swam more mileage right after the car accident than I was swimming while training for Ironman prior because I always hated swimming. It was never my favorite. So I would always like opt for extra bike time and extra running time almost any time I had the chance and be like, ooh, I should have gotten more mileage in the swim. I'm kind of a little, little shaky on my swimming. But yeah, just like lean into that. And then I knew enough about biomechanics because of my uh, physical education degree to know that when you're walking up and down steep hills, you don't have to have the same range of motion in your knee that you do when you're running. When you're running, you have to have a moment where your knee goes truly straight to be able to activate all of that stored elastic energy from your Achilles tendon. Otherwise, you just kind of like lope along with kind of, you know, a limp. And so I couldn't do that because my knee would hardly bend at all. But I was like, okay, I can walk up and down hills. So I started climbing the local hill a bunch of times. That led to climbing some of the local mountains like Mount McLaughlin. And then I found myself climbing Shasta. And then I started looking around for like Mount Hood, which was a bit more technical and Mount Jefferson that has a really technical summit block. And I was like, wait, okay. Like that got super real. Like being an inexperienced rock climber, that got very real. I probably shouldn't have continued soloing up that because I climbed it solo my first time, uh, but made it to the top, soloed, soloed the fifth class terrain. And I was like, that was pretty sketchy. I need to become a highly proficient rock climber so that when I am soloing this stuff, because I'm going to keep doing this, I'm proficient and I'm able to be absolutely certain in my capacity to make these movements. So I started training as a rock climber, learning all the rope skills, learning all the knots, uh, upper body strength, which had never been a part of my routine. You know, I, I come from fairly thick, stocky roots. Like I'm not from a thin, light, agile family. I'm from like a working class family where they're thick, stocky, heavy, um, you know, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm a workhorse. So I always avoided the weights because when I would mess around with them, even a little bit, like in college once, uh, over a winter between cross country and track, uh, some guys from my dorm convinced me to start lifting legs with them. And we were just like, you know, doing like 700 plus pounds on like the leg press machine and stuff like that. And I show up to track season and I'm standing with the distance runner and the, one of the coaches comes over and says, are you standing in the wrong group and like gestures at my legs? And I'm like, Oh damn it. (laughs) Um, so it's like, I put on, I, I always put on muscle tissue super fast. So I'd like intentionally let my upper body atrophy. And I remember, you know, uh, entering the gym and literally being the period worst period person there. Um, like, straight up there there were 11 year olds that were climbing routes that I couldn't make it to the top of. And I'm just like, wow, this really sucks. Like I'm already kind of dealing with the self-consciousness of not being good at the stuff I used to be really good at. And now here I am like 11 year olds are better than me in this space. And just like realizing in that moment, like, okay, this is going to suck and not be fun for a while. That quote, be brave enough to suck at something new comes to mind. Right. And just like being willing to sit with that and reminding myself, like, sometimes I say that I'm lucky to teach elementary because you, you, you hand a kindergartner a basketball, they will miss wildly for 30 minutes straight. And there's no judgment. There's no, I suck at basketball. They'll, they'll miss wildly. And the next time you hand them a basketball, they're happy to play with the basketball. And I was like, okay, be like a kindergartner. Just be happy to be here doing it, trying a new thing, play, goof off, fail, don't self-judge. And so kind of suspended that self-judgment. And I think that ties into what I was asking earlier uh, or what I was saying earlier to your prior question about 
not living in my own shadow. I referenced that. And then the other part of that was flipping the mindset where instead of looking at the gap from where I was to where I wanted to be, it was noticing like every little bit of progress again, like, oh, this is the furthest my knee has ever bent. This is the furthest I've walked without my knee swelling up. This is, oh, I jogged today. And it was a, it was a 14 minute mile instead of a 16 minute mile, like things that I used to take for granted or things that just never had even happened that I would have thought something was horrifically wrong if I was that slow and non-functional, but instead celebrating those little wins and those little wins, which is the process we get good at anything in the first place. Right. And so bringing that to bear on, on this rock climbing space as well, where it's just like, wait a minute, like I was able to hold that hold for like half a second this time, like I'm close. I'm almost there. And I can still remember like about eight months and maybe even a bit more. I'm probably for my own sake, shortening that time span up. It might've been longer, but about eight months in, uh, being in there, climbing some routes, having gotten somewhat good at some things and someone going, Oh, Hey, how do you do that? And just kind of going, wait a minute. Someone thinks I'm actually good at something. They want me to teach like, uh, like feeling that moment of arrival, like, okay, I've put the work in. I'm at least good enough that someone thinks I'm halfway decent at what I do. And then it started to get a lot more fun after that when it's like, okay, because for me, a huge part of my personality is, is that the reason I elevate myself, the reason I chase challenge myself is because I derive a huge amount of gratification from turning around and helping others. Um, you know, it's why I'm a teacher. It's why my, my outdoor adventures fuel my teaching and my teaching fuels my outdoor adventures. And then the same as a coach, both for kids and adults, um, like those two, those two have to, have to operate together. And I think when athletes sometimes talk about the hollow feeling coming back from a grand adventure and then not being able to reintegrate to life, it's because they have an absence of a, well, then here's who it matters to now that I succeeded, right? Because that's the great hero's journey story, right? The hero goes out, faces the grand adventure, you know, slays the dragons and then brings the gold back to share with the village. And that's what makes the story complete. And, and so the gold is the wisdom, the experience, the, the, the inspiration in this case, you know, cause nobody's really paying me <laughs> real gold. Um, so it's like you go out and you do these things, but in order for them to have full meaning and, and integration into our lives, you have to be coming back and giving something to others with it. We just had this really cool panel session at this blister summit. It just wrapped up like a couple of days ago. That's why I keep referencing it. It's fresh, but I did a athlete panel with four very high level, um, skiers, but also runners. Drew Peterson, um, was on this panel and, uh, but we titled it the mental game. And one of the things, you know, often like the mental game in our sports, you know, mountain sports, it's like, how do you visualize success and prepare yourself for a race? And we kind of blew this notion out way broader looking at like the many, many, elements of, uh, well, <laughs> the mental game that kind of exist. And we got talking about this notion of anybody that is striving to be really good at anything. It's, I think, virtually impossible to not to start getting your own identity tied up with that focused pursuit of excellence in a given area. I think that's actually pretty natural you know, that our identity starts to get more and more tied up or narrowed, you know, ossified into this one thing. But one of the things that kind of evolved, maybe everybody else knows this except me, 
But one of the things, and this touches on exactly what you were just saying, it's one thing to have an identity, but we might not, or we might also then want to keep a sense of purpose. And those can be two different things, right? So, you know, you are a runner, but when you were just talking about, hey, that's cool, and I'm trying to do it at a really high level, but what's important, as you just said, is to bring this back and to help others, to teach others, that's maybe your purpose. And maybe don't don't conflate those two things or, you know, just smash purpose into that identity. That's when we probably really run the risk of, well, then if something is taken away from us, we are left hollow and without meaning. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like there's there's two parts to the question, right? There's the who am I? But then there, right along with that is the, well, why does it matter? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's identity and purpose. And I think having both figured out independently of each other is going to be hugely helpful. I, and I think, you know, again, I think something we do as Americans is we conflate behavior and identity a lot. Like we say, I am a runner. And this was something I had to do after my car accident too, right? Like I self-described as a triathlete. It's like, well, I'm not really that anymore, am I? But it's like, well, that's just a behavior. What that's to me the the way I've come to to, to hold it in my mo- own mind, the way I've, I conceptualize it now is I'm a driven, passionate person who can't sit still. That's who I am, and the the medium I choose to paint that through is endurance and mountain sport. But because I have that distinction, it seems unimportant at first. But if tomorrow, if on my way home tonight, I get in a car accident and this time I lose my legs, I'm going to come out of the coma and I'm going to shop for a racing wheelchair, right? Like that's the difference between knowing, knowing the difference there is, is, you know, you're just going to reach for that next brush. You're going to reach for that next medium, just like an artist who decides to pick up clay after years of painting, right? You're, you're going to continue to express yourself. It's just a matter of changing the medium. And I think that's another healthy distinction to have is you've got identity, you've got behavior, and then you've got the purpose, the bigger purpose, the just cause that you're pursuing in the world with those things. You know what? Honestly, this sounds pretty good. You know, you talked about some tough moments in your life, but it sounds like you never went through really dark periods that you were able to pretty quickly understand like, well, here's the pivot, you know, or it took you one minute to move to the defiant stance as we were calling it. Like, I'm going to get back to this. Is that, is that fair? No, that's probably not fair. I mean, you can't, it's like, I mean, in a way, yeah, the pivot, like I knew my direction. Right. And I think there's a huge amount of strength and balance that comes from the fact that I pivoted so quickly in that. But I guess, you know, to add some more color to this story, if it really needs more, uh, my significant other, my wife of four years at the time left me during this as well. And so all of my friends were either swim friends, bike friends, or run friends. So I lost access to my friends because they're still out doing cool shit, right? They can't, they can't stop their training for Ironmans and ultras to come hang out with crippled old me. And then I'm broken up and still in this apartment that a person who I have four years worth of memories with has you know, left me. Like there were literally times where I started to say something and realize, oh, I'm alone and I'm going to keep being alone. And no matter how much you like have a direction picked out, like that's not an easy human moment to live inside of. Um, so it wasn't all like rainbows and daisies, 
um, there were, there was, there was some darkness to wade through there and to come out the other side of and not, not be bitter and not be, not allow it to color my view of the world with darkness. And I think those, those eyes of hope and extending people grace again was a superpower there. Um, you know, she wasn't out to hurt me. It just so happened that a huge life transition for her overlapped with a huge setback for me. And so I can, I can extend that. It still, you know, created a shitty situation and it was tough, but there was no malevolence, no intended malevolence there. So yeah, I mean, it comes back to that, like distilling comment I made, right? It's like, we've got all this shit going on with our plan and with all these to-do list items. We've got all this shit going on in our emotions, all this, these undercurrents of dark emotions, these struggles that are going on. But fundamentally, you peel that all away and it's still that, am I going to take another step because my legs are still working? Or am I going to say, this hurts too much, I quit. And I guess something I learned from the the ultra running is this idea of just like looking down. Like I literally used to do this in races. I still do it. What am I saying? I would look down like in those moments when it gets really, really dark, I would look down and I would look at my legs and just be like, look, they are still carrying you forward towards your goal, which means unless you decide to quit, you are going to reach your goal. Like physically, look, there's your evidence. Like everything is fine. Just keep doing that. And like that, that to me is kind of the the power of our process brought out and applied to life. It doesn't make it, it's not like it magically makes the moment better. It's not like suddenly like, oh, I'm back from my bonk. I'm not sleep deprived anymore. I'm not hallucinating and falling asleep on my feet. It's like the only, the only magic to it is knowing however bad it gets, I'm not going to quit on myself. (laughs) When did you first learn about FKTs? Ah. Um, so let's fast forward in the recovery process. I got back after, you know, pursuing this rock climbing, pursuing, I'd gotten to a place where it was like, okay, now I'm climbing in Alpine environments again, a little more proficiently, uh, with a, with a better skill set, understanding the kind of decisions I was making and the running started to come back again, not fast, but I was able to like cruise my way through, you know, 12 minute miles for, you know, 15, 20 miles without my knee swelling up. And so instantly I started to go, all right. Let's bag this peak with a technical summit and run this trail to this peak and bag that one and see if both of them go in a day. Okay, what about all three of these in a day? Um, and so I was already just like chasing these like link ups on your own, and then with no on my own, just yeah, just to do me, me, me and a buddy at a, at the time who was also just kind of like same thing, looking for something to do with all this energy and like passion for life that we had, and so we're just out like doing this stuff and you know, taking some risks for sure. Um, soloing some things we probably shouldn't have soloed. Um, but just going for it. And then the FKT concept just drops into my lap and I'm like, wait a minute, we're already doing this. So actually some of my early FKTs I had done already, like the Shasta Shastina link up and the crater Lake, uh, rim high route circumnavigating crater, crater Lake, taking, taking the high points of the rim as you go. Um, I'd already done those. And it was just like, oh, those are obvious quality FKT routes to, to like these iconic things in, in this area. Um, so I submitted them and they got accepted. And then I'm like, okay, let's go down this path. And uh, the first FKT I did that I knew I was chasing an FKT was I flew over to Hawaii 
and did Sea to Summit on Mauna Kea, uh, running from Hilo all the way up the highway to the summit. So, you know, a pure 13, almost 14,000 feet of elevation gain um, over the course of 40 miles and, you know, had a, had an awesome experience. Um, I wanted to beat the supported time unsupported, but didn't quite manage to do that, but still got the unsupported time. And then, yeah, from there just kept like finding some of my own routes that were like beautiful lines in, you know, technical terrain and in backcountry that like either you could just see them out on the horizon. And it's like, that makes sense. And like doing the research and being like, it doesn't look like anybody's done that fast. Like people have done it as like backpacking trips, but no report of anybody like pushing it hard. So just go out there and like push it hard in a day or push it hard in a half day. And then also started challenging some routes in the Pacific Northwest that did did have times on them as well. Um, and finishing up some routes that like uh, one that I was really happy I did was Oregon's five highest, which Christoph Tuscher that some people may know and follow because of his absolutely heinous wild adventures doing like uh, an octuple crossing of the Grand Canyon. Uh, he's that guy. He uh, like he had attempted one that his technical skills weren't good enough for, which was Oregon's five highest peaks, but connecting them all on foot with the PCT. Um, so the three sisters, Jefferson and Hood. And I'm like, oh, like that's well within my technical ability to solo, even exhausted out of my mind. I'm I can trust my skill sets to solo those. So like went out and did that. And it was fun to like put a put the put a finish mark in something that was unfinished that someone had left as a project. Um and you know, things like that, just finding these like big audacious goals to go chase that mixed technical skill and mountaineering with this like logistics of multi-day effort. And then I also started leaning into doing some very technical, well, the maximum for an FKT, like five, seven rock climbing, you know, you're exposed. If you slip, you fall and die, which is, it's serious. It's deadly serious. It's not like, oh yeah, you end up in the hospital. It's like, well, no, someone's calling your parents um, and your loved ones and getting out and pushing hard in terrain like that uh, and mixing that with running uh, became kind of a, a pursuit for a while through my 20, my upper twenties as well. Um, and I think those, those kind of became the, the staple and the thing I became known for was pursuing those kinds of like mixed, uh, multi-day and single day goals that were, you know, as you said, kind of risk-taking could be seen as risk-taking behaviors to some, um, humorously with, with my, my current girlfriend, sometimes I would come back and be like, well, lived through that one. Guess I have to find another, <laughs> um, so yeah, she got to where she could laugh at that. Um, but yeah, it, and I guess that all leads into the the Bulgers, right? The Washington's hundred highest, like the teacher's mind in me, like I'd heard about it probably back when I had like 30 or 50 FKTs. And it was like, you know, someone was like, oh, 410 days, that record's going to stand a long time. And I was like, well, I mean, <laughs> you're like, eh. uh, and it was like, I didn't want to mean any disrespect. Cause it's like, I hadn't climbed in Washington. I mean, when I did the Bulgers, I'd only ever climbed two of the hundred peaks, like 98 of those peaks I onsighted. So like, I didn't really know, but I also knew enough about athletes and mountain pursuits that it's like, even if these peaks are absolutely heinous, the record should at most be a hundred days, like one day per peak. Uh, like in my mind, it was like impossible that it could be harder than that. Um, and, but I didn't think anything of it. And I like, whatever, let it, let it, let it go. Um, but in my head, I was like, that can go faster. And anyways, fast forward, I'm getting up to like 90 FKTs and people start to ask the question, what are you going to do for number 100? And I'm just like a huge thing about me is like, you know, I teach elementary PE because I'm able to stay in that mind of just 
letting things be novel and exciting, even if I've done it a thousand times, like I teach skateboarding to my students, but I also still just relish in the experience of like, what did it feel like when I landed my first kickflip? Like that was a, that was a day. Like I can remember, I can remember where I was on the skate park in my hometown when I landed that first kickflip and like letting myself relish in that again and the importance of that to a young person. And so I, br- I bring that to, to bear on what I do even here and now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to lose my train of thought here. Uh, but with, with the Bulgers, um, this idea of it being this cumulative final exam, right? Like I get to go out and everything I've ever faced, technical glacier travel, uh, fifth class rock climbing, um, multi-day adventure, bushwhacking, route finding, orienteering, um, logistics with a crew, uh, logistics with a vehicle while a clock is running. Uh, where are you going to refuel? Where are you going to restock supplies? Um, all of that, but cranked up by an order of magnitude from anything I'd done prior, a factor of 10 from anything I'd done prior. And that I was going to be going, you know, eventually after six months of planning and research and talking to local mountaineers and and building maps and re- and researching routes and trip reports, it became apparent that 50 days was a reasonably possible goal to to go for. And it's like, okay, this fits in a school summer, right? Because I am, you know, the sometimes the limitations of our life are what make what we do the most interesting. It's like, no, there is a limit to how long this record can take because it has to fit in my school summer. I'm not willing to like sacrifice my career as a teacher and sacrifice like being a good teacher to my students to to go cuz that would miss the whole purpose of my life, right? Like I orient my life around those things fitting together. But that's what makes it interesting. It's like this record has to fit in the 80 days I have for my school summer, otherwise it's not possible. Um so it's like all right, 100 peaks has to go in less than 80 days, which is, you know, just uh completely different way of thinking about it than anybody's ever thought about because 410 days is the fastest time. So just like coming in just way out of left field and a lot of people because of how technical and risky these peaks are and you know a kid that everybody loved who'd climbed them all died uh, just prior to me starting to plan all this. uh, They were really hesitant like man you're just going to go out and like take all these risks and you're going to get yourself killed and we're going to have been a part of that. Um, so it took, it took a lot of honesty and humility and willingness to like, no, I'm going to have a rope out there. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to, you know, especially on glaciers use proper glacier, uh, travel. Like, I'm not just going to go out and solo all these glaciers that people die on, um, and just hope it turns out, um, like that's not the style I'm going in. Now we did end up climbing all of the rock routes without ever putting a piece of gear in or doing any repels. And that blows people's minds. That, but just the the kid I climbed with, Nathan Longhurst, he's actually out climbing the SPS list right now, um, sps2020.com for people that want to tune into that. Uh, it's a list of 247 peaks in California. Uh, he climbs like 513. He's like almost like professional level rock climber. So he was able to solo just fine. And me with my background of purposely focusing on speed soloing and soloing, I was like, no, like I feel fine. Do you feel fine? He's like, I feel fine. It's like, all right, well, let's not pull the rope out. Um, so just managed to solo up and down solo all of these peaks. And everybody's just like, what <laughs> you did hard mocks without pulling a rope rope out. Um, that thing's a chassis piece of junk and fifth class for sure. But yeah, ended up, uh, yeah, pulling it all together, I guess you could say. 
Well, that might actually be a good place for us to leave this conversation off. At this point, honestly, I'm really excited for people to go watch your film. And, you know, so long as you promise to come back and we sort of get to, you know, talk again after people have had a chance to watch this. Um, there's a whole lot of other pretty big topics that I think it'd be really fun to go over with uh, with you, Jason. And so as long as you agree to come back, I think we are going to wrap this conversation for now. Is that you agree? Not only do I promise to come back, I'd be honored to come back. This has been <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. And tell people, where is the film? Where can people see it? I understand it's touring now. Absolutely. So, uh, well, right now it is it is in festival uh, with the Vancouver International Film Festival. Um, then Athletic Brewing, uh, the sponsor of the film. Yeah. Um, you know, if you haven't tried their product, yeah. get out and try some Athletic Brewing. It's probably available near you. Uh, they sponsored this film, and we're going to do a film tour together, me and them. And we're going to go to we're going to be going to Brooklyn. We're going to be going to Denver. Uh, we're going to be in Seattle and Portland. Um, for some in-person showings. And then the big one that makes it available for everybody is it's going to be launching mid-May um, on Outside TV, uh, which I think Outside TV actually just dropped their smart TV app. So now you can get Outside TV on your smart TV. Um, so it'll be dropping on their 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 channel. Um, and that'll be the the place to watch it from the comfort of your home. So yeah, it's all coming up. It's been crazy. It's been kind of spinning and it's been weird to be a part of it as a person that just tends to climb mountains. And now it's like I'm wrapped into the world and all this technology and, and schedules and stuff. It's kind of crazy to have it all finally about to happen. Um, and I think the film is, it's going to impact people. Uh, the people who've seen it so far, it's, yeah, it's, it's touched them. And I'm, I'm excited about that. Cause like I said, through this conversation, a huge reason I do what I do is to have permission to speak into people's lives and help lift them. And I think this is going to be a, a fabulous tool and experience for, for, for people to connect with what I did and hopefully connect with some part of themselves that, that needs a little kick in the pants to get out the door. <laughs> That's excellent, man. I, I, I told you, I'm looking forward to seeing this one myself. And uh, so, you know, We'll talk off air about, you know, making that happen maybe sooner than later. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, dude, this has been great. And, you know, it's funny at the top of the conversation, you were like, you know, everybody's favorite, the PE teacher. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people hated their PE teacher. But <laughs> I now understand why your students really appreciate you. And, um, I man, they are lucky folks I think that uh, get to uh, gum, come have you introduce them to this world of PE. Like, man, I did not quite have PE teachers like you, and I think um, that would have been really cool if I had. So I'm, I'm happy for all those kids that are, are uh, you know, coming through class with you and getting on skateboards and unicycles and the rest. It means it means a lot. It means the world to hear you say that. Um, it is something I care about, and I mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to bring this out to the world. And hopefully for those people who did have the bad PE teacher where it's colored their taste for a lot of sport yeah. and activity, like hopefully I get to give them permission to step back and go, well, what if you'd actually had a good PE teacher? Mm -hmm. How would you feel about these things? And maybe it'll give some peop people permission to rethink rethink that part of their life. And that that would be a huge honor for me to, to do that for people. Hey, man, this has been fun. I um, 
we've already, you know, committed. We're going to do this again and run it back. I'm looking forward to that. And um, in the meantime, I hope the tour goes well and good luck getting the film out to everybody. And um, I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Absolutely, Jonathan. This was a total pleasure. Mm. All right, Jason, (laughs) you take care. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.